Welcome to Benchon Talks Shit, a podcast where we uncover the answers to life's questions, both big and small, on empowerment, love, money, sex, business, and more. I'm your host, Desiree Pace, founder of Benchon.com. Let's dive in. Okay, I am so excited to be here with a friend of mine, and I just couldn't even remember how we met, but my friend Darren Hansen, who is a friend, someone we've known each other through various different communities, because it's not just one in New York City. Do you remember how we met? How did we meet? I think on our rooftop in Brooklyn, uh, maybe through Kelly and Victor, uh, our mutual friends, and uh, I just remember having long conversations uh, on that beautiful rooftop that we had in Williamsburg there. It was so fun with the polar bear. That was so many years <laughs> ago at this point. Oh my gosh. Well, welcome to Bench on Talk Shit. And for those who are new, this is a podcast where the real vision for this podcast was to do exactly this, was to just, that the, the name has two meanings. One, it's to like shoot the shit because I'm in New York. I'm from, you know, I've been living in New York for a very long time now. I can't count at this point. But, and then shit stands for so honestly into this, that, or them. So in this episode, it's so honestly into them, which is Baron Hansen. And I would just love for you to just tell the audience, the community, who you are and what you're up to. Thanks. There's a little background on you. Thanks, Des. Yeah, it's been so nice to to see you and see your rise and see all of the courses and how empowering you've been over the years. And uh, I think a podcast is a natural progression for you. So you. I'm really honored to be, um, be chosen to have a chat with you. Um, but a little bit about my story. So I lived in New York for eight years. When I was in New York, I founded a creative studio called Convix. And our mission statement at Convix is troublemakers for a better world. And the whole idea was we wanted to tell stories and tell stories about interesting people that were causing trouble, the right, the right kind of trouble. And I love my time in New York. As you know, as we know, New York is a very intense place uh, and takes an intense energy. And I think where you and I first connected was about meditation. And I had my own meditation practice. You obviously have yours, which is, um, I remember when we first met, you were telling me about your meditation practice and you were, you had to leave the party early because you were about, you had oh to get gosh. up at 4 a.m. <laughs> to start at 5 a.m. <laughs> Something like that. And I was just like, wow, this, this girl's the real deal. <laughs> what were you doing at those? What was your, um, your program at that time? Well, I just can't even remember what year we met. Whatever year we met, I'm like, what extreme is I on? Because I'm such a Scorpio and I go super extreme into different things. And then the pendulum swings back into the middle. But if I was getting up at 4 a.m., it was definitely practicing Kundalini Yoga because there's something called sadhana, which is it can either be a very particular sadhana, which is traditionally you get up at 4 a.m. in the ambrosial hour. So it's like when the sun is rising between 4 to 6 a.m., which is when the mind is really fresh and you're really coming out of that subconscious state from sleeping and you can really change the hardware of your mind more in that time. So they meditate at that. A lot of traditionally people meditate during that time from four to six. And it's part of the community practice where the sadhana, where you would go and there's an Aquarian sadhana with a set of kriyas and meditations and practices that we do. But what we were probably doing is one particular one called Bangya Kankar, which I used to do for 40 days in a row. 
And I would go to parties and leave parties at like, you know, eight o'clock at night, you know, jump in because I love being social. So that's probably what I was up to. That's so funny. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> so many different versions of us. Uh, yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit about, you were talking about comics, which I just talking about inspiration. I always loved what you were doing with the comics. It was so inspiring to see how you tell stories, how you share with the world. What inspired you to start comics and and share through these troublemakers and telling their stories? Yeah, that's a really great question. When I first moved to New York, I actually had no plans. I, I moved, I, I used to have a travel agency and I sold my travel agency. Mm-hmm. And so I had I didn't know that. a little bit of money to just do nothing for a short amount of time. I had about a year to do nothing. And in that time, I met some other Australians who were living in New York and uh, they were starting to make short films. Uh, one was a director and one was a cinematographer. And so funnily enough, a travel agency comes with a certain set of skills and those skills are, were directly transferable over to helping to produce films like organizing, booking things, like all this, that skill set directly correlated to being a producer of films. So I met these guys. It was a natural team. We kind of, we buddied up together. We created Convicts. And our whole idea was that we just, we all loved telling stories. We all loved t- finding those weird and wacky people that you meet in New York and uncovering and sharing their story with the world. And so we just started doing that. I think we made about 250 short films. So like three to five minute mini documentaries about interesting people. And we just put them out like with with no purpose other than just to to share their story. And, you know, we, we tried to grow a bit of a following and it was a lot of fun because we just met so many interesting people and many of them I'm still friends with today, which is awesome. What was your favorite one to do? Your favorite project to work on? Okay, so I know it's kind of like asking you your what's your favorite baby, but I feel like we've all have one at least that no, I have all, left a memory of the short, more than the short films. Obviously, they got longer and longer, and so we've made a few feature length documentaries now. But one of the short films that I love the most, we went down to Salem, Massachusetts, and interviewed a witch. Um, actually, she was one of the highest ranked witches in America. Her name was gypsy rubbish and I, I was a bit of a skeptic to be honest about magic like uh you know i i didn't really believe in magic and i went down and i spent an hour and a half two hours interviewing her in her temple and in that couple hours she kind of changed my whole perception of magic and we put out this short short film it's still on youtube and she just had this way of communicating about magic. And she said something interesting that's always stuck with me. She said that science and magic are strange bedfellows because what we used to think was magic, we now know as science, like fire, for example. And it really created this shift in my mind. And I was like, I'm, I'm converting. I'm, I'm, I'm converting to Wicca. Like, this is, this is awesome. You're awesome. And, you know, those moments where you, ha- you go and you have your expectations changed in a good way from someone that you wouldn't expect, that was, that was a really cool experience. I love that you led with that. That was not where I was expecting the conversation to go. But I love all things on this topic. I feel it's such a great way to put it because I feel like what we think is magic has been such a projection through film and movies from a more Disney or a more um, very mystical standpoint, which is like over mystified in many ways. And maybe probably hopefully does exist on some planes and dimensions as well. But I think that this whole aspect of that, I think, you know, I was studying with the Dallas Grandmaster for um, a little while and just he really changed my perception of like reality what we think it is and then a reality where magic exists and I felt I did feel for so long that my life was 
filled with so much magic. And I really love that more and more people are able to see that, especially I love what, the way that you framed it, like the reframe of perspective, where it was like fire was once, you know, considered magic to people. And there's so many different things that we're learning now. For example, one thing that I think of is Bob Proctor, who I absolutely love. And he talks about the six higher faculties of the mind. And these faculties, like intuition, perception, all of these things that people think are safe or certain people are actually all faculties within all of us that really do make our lives more magical and are filled with magic in some ways, maybe different from this. But it's it's just interesting how to see all of this stuff becoming more modernized in the way that is just really special and inclusive as well. So I love that. So how did you get to, because it's just, you you went, you studied meditation. And I just was so inspired by that because tell me a little bit about how you got into meditation. You teach Vedic meditation now and what inspired you to do that? So yeah, living in New York, Vedic meditation for me was the thing that really helped me to balance that intense energy. Um, Very simply, Vedic meditation is considered a mantra-based practice or its classification is an automatic self-transcendent technique, most similar to transcendental meditation. You get given your own personalized mantra and the mantra is the tool for de-exciting the mind. So I don't know very much about Vedic meditation, which is like, so please feel like I'm just going to be learning through you right now. I'm very excited because I've been practicing Kundalini and uh, other, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, but I never dipped into Vedic meditation. So I'm so curious to hear. Yeah. In Vedic meditation, it comes from India, like a lot of these practices, it um, comes down from the teacher Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. He was the first person to kind of bring this kind of practice to the Western world. Maharishi was very famous because he was the, the guru of the Beatles, but he probably taught about a million other people to meditate as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it was very, very popular in the 1960s and the 1970s. And so to become a practitioner, a teacher of Vedic meditation is quite an intense process. I did about two years of prerequisite courses and then ended up doing a three-month uh, intensive teacher training. The teacher training is always usually in India, but because of COVID, it was in Arizona in 2022. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think by the end of it, I'd done about a 3,000 hour uh, teacher training course. It's, it's actually re- pretty intense. <laughs> I, would, I didn't expect it to be so intense. And funnily enough, I, you know, I thought I would always be a teacher, but like a side hustle. I was like, I'm going to continue convicts and continue making films and I'll teach like weekend courses for people. But uh, after I finished the course, I was like, I want to go all in. This is like, I I love this so much. And for me, it's so effortless. And you know, and I'm sure you feel this, when you find your dharma, when you find that thing, that purpose for being, that it's effortless. And when I teach, it's like I get energized. It doesn't take energy from me. And I, I know that that's some of your teachings and what you work through with people, right, is helping them to find their purpose for being and helping them to find where their energy flows. It's actually really interesting. I took a little break from teaching Kundalini Yoga because I was doing other things. I was running Benchan. Um, um, I had been teaching yoga and meditation since 2010. And I always just loved it. I really loved all the various different ways I've taught it. And for some reason, the Kundalini lineage in particular really resonated and I really loved teaching it and I took a break from it because I kind of thought that I had to be an entrepreneur in a certain way. Benchon was growing. I thought I had to run my business in a certain way that I thought it was time to evolve out of like teaching, you know, studio classes as much as I was. And um, I'm really into human design. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but I'm something called a manifesting generator, which we 
get lit up. When we get lit up by things, we're supposed to follow that. And that's where we get all of our energy from. And I just remember hearing a, a mantra because we use a lot of mantra in Chameleon Yoga. And there's one on Spotify that I found that was just so beautiful. And I just was like, oh my God, I miss teaching in class and just creating that experience for people to come to themselves and to come at home. And I just really miss teaching because it felt like something that was really gave me energy. And I always felt so nourished by it. And I know that's not the case for everybody. Sometimes it can be really you know, energy leak, but it's really fortunate when you find not just teaching, but anything, when you find things that you think you're excited about or want to be excited about. But yeah, so you tell me about this at 3000 hours. That is a lot of hours of training. What was, you said it was intense. What was the most intense thing that you could really, what was intense about it? I mean, it's obviously intense, but was it the actual, was it the routine of it? Was it confronting parts of yourself that maybe you were, not expecting to meet through this sort of intensive training. Yeah, the there's a saying, and it's like often attributed to Abraham Lincoln, but it probably wasn't him. But uh, if you have six hours to cut down a tree, spend the first five sharpening your axe. And I was expecting teacher training was all going to be about like, here's how to be a teacher, and like you know, te- this is te- teach. But but what it was really about was raising our level of consciousness. And so spending a lot of time meditating, but also a lot of time doing advanced meditation practice and removing as much stress from the physiology as we can so that when it came time to actually learn the knowledge required to teach, we were so absorbed, we were so ready to absorb that knowledge that it all just, it went in at a really deep level. So it was a lot of meditation. We did, yeah, we did a 14 week teacher training which was I, I took I turned off my phone, which was really cool. I had no a- outside access to the world, uh, which was I remember when incredible. I saw you post that. I was like, I was like, I'm so inspired by this. That's wild. I mean, just doing that. If anyone do turn their phone off for 14 weeks, they're gonna they're gonna raise their level of consciousness. Um, and so that was you're gonna be enlightened <laughs> after those 14 weeks. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and um, you know, the course had a lot of different different hooks for different people to bring out stress. And as that stress came out, we were able to kind of move through it. And by the time we got to the end, you know, we're in this state of consciousness where we're just operating at a really high level and um, we're able to, you know, be out there and, and export that happiness for others because our cup is full. Yeah, I love that. I remember when I first did my, I, I did a couple of teacher trainings in different other lineages and then I did, it was very technical, like, you know, because with yoga teaching asana, you have to be technical, you have to know the body, you have to know how it works and how to move people and a lot of things. And then when I got to Kundalini, it was so radically different. And I just remember the training was so intense. I mean, they would put us in these meditations for, you know, and like holding your arms up or something for like 62 minutes and you're just locked into this energy. I would always come back from those trainings just feeling, I don't even know what the word is. I I was like another planet had to come down and reintegrate and just really... But it's just really, when you put yourself through those experiences and change your consciousness so much, is this something that... I think it's such a wide range of word now, like changing our consciousness. And it's such a popular word, you know, elevate our frequency and change our consciousness. For me, I'm always searching for like, how does that really pertain to me? And what does that actually mean? Um, so if you could say like, what is the most, what's the biggest gift that you've gotten from this? You know, because when we use, for me, it's like when I say elevate my consciousness and raise my frequency, I know what it means to me. 
And it's a gift that was given. And for me, I'll share afterwards, but I just want to know what, what is your gift that you like, what did you take from all of that and were able to sprinkle in your life with it, aside from teaching, like for you? I think when we think about consciousness, it's a hard word for some people to kind of get their head around. And so when I think of consciousness, I like to think of awareness. Awareness and consciousness are kind of synonymous. How conscious you are, how enlightened you are, how much awareness you have of a particular topic. You know, for example, Kundalini yoga. You are very, you have a lot of high consciousness about that. You're enlightened when it comes to Kundalini yoga. So you've placed a lot of attention there. So I like to think about that. And I think about well, Vedic meditation has given me kind of this like, extrasensory awareness. So in the first, the first thing that happens when you start to do this style of meditation is your senses start to refine. So as you remove stress from your physiology, your senses become stronger. And they've shown this in scientific studies is your, your hearing, your taste, your touch, your, your eyes sight all improves. Right. Wow. And so you start to have more awareness of the things around you. You start to notice more things. And I kind of think about it like, you know, like an artist when they're, when they're in kindergarten, they start with a really thick brush and they're doing these big like abstract paintings. And then as they move through school, they get finer and finer. And when they get to fine art school, they're using a brush with a single hair that normal people can't even notice the difference. But that's kind of what we're doing through this practice of, of Vedic meditation. As we remove stress from the physiology, our senses refine and we improve our fine level of feeling. So we start to be able to discern things. We start to make better decisions because we have more awareness. And so that's really a superpower, right? This ability to make decisions between two fine things. And so I think when we talk about consciousness, we can talk about awareness, but we can also talk about enlightenment. They're all kind of synonymous here. Yeah, I love that because it's really... The way that I always kind of, as, as I've gotten older, you know, and grown into my wiser years now that I'm so old and wise. Um, but one thing I just sort of noticed is that I think that when I first started practicing, I was really expecting things to look and be a certain way. There was an expectation of what it meant to, like what would happen when I would meditate enough or do enough of the work and, you know, apply myself enough or heal myself enough. And really what I have found is exactly what you have said, which is one extra sensitivity, which is a superhuman power. And it's really the human power. We're kind of living subhuman in a way and not really utilizing all of our gifts uh, individually, which is why I love that new book by Rick Rubin, which is very much about being that channel. And, and for me, that was really what we're meant to do here. But if we have all that stress in the system, we can't be perceptive to the sensory system in a way that will really benefit us and our gifts. But then also the discerning, which is like the way that I put it is like we are just sort of a byproduct of our habits and patterns that were uploaded into us from a very early age by our surroundings, our parents, cultural conditioning, everything. And we sort of have these programs that are running the show. We start to do these practices. We start to sort of delete the old software. And then you can discern, you know, maybe every day, the way I put it, like every day you're going right and you're living your life and you're going right every single day. And then suddenly you start meditating. You're like, wait a second, I'm going right. Like, actually, I can go left, you know? And then you make one move over here. And it, that's where like that change starts to happen when you start to do things, respond differently. So I love that. That's such a great, has it, has it helped you with your work, with your creative work as well? I want to talk about that new project that you're working on as well, but in terms of creativity, in terms of, you know, what's been the biggest change you've seen? Yeah, actually just on that, uh, my teacher's teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, he never used the word enlightenment uh, at first, he just called it getting normal, which I think is really funny. <laughs> getting what? <laughs> getting what? Get, 
getting normal. <laughs> I like that. I like that. And you've got to remember that like our natural state is to be in a stress-free physiology, but just mm-hmm. the modern world that we're living in, we're accumulating more and more stress than ever. And we know that the number one way that we remove stress from our physiology is through deep rest. And so, you know, when it comes to things like creativity, when we can remove, we can remove that stress, that's when we can access that layer of creativity, you know, that unboundedness, that infinite well of creativity that's down there. And I'm reading that Ruben book as well at the moment, The Creative Act. It's a, it's pretty popular. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's about if we can, if we can kind of like get out of our head and more into, you know, our, our body and our stomach and our, you know, where, where those kind of like creative impulses come from then we can access more. And so for me personally, I, you know, when I first started, uh, before I started meditating, I was the producer, you know, so, and the producer is typically a relatively uncreative role. You know, you have to be pretty like, you've got to get people to where they need to be. And then when the creative act starts, you step out of the way and you let the director and the cinematographer, the creatives do the work. And so I certainly have found over the last eight years of doing this practice that I've stepped more into my creative self and it's come with creative confidence and it's come with just having more access to that creative well um, through this stress-free physiology. But um, yeah, what about you from a creative side? Yeah, thank you for asking. All of my business ideas have come to me in two places. One is from meditating, like in those 4 a.m. Like, you know, because you're just so tapped in and then two in the shower. And I was just, you know, those two places. And it's so funny because you know, one meditation, I feel like it just sort of opens a channel for you to really listen and to really be receptive to what, I don't know, maybe to yourself, to, I loved, I loved what Rick said about all of these ideas are trying to come through us and it's up to us to grab them or their, that creativity is going to pass on to, it needs to be expressed. I think that for me, it's kind of allowed me to be more of a channel and have more uh, clarity and energy of what I want to do and how I want to do it. But also the shower thing is so funny because I never got it. I was just like, why do I always have my best ideas in the shower? Only in the shower. I mean, I can do it. I can literally go. If I'm feeling stuck, I can go put myself in the shower and I will have all these ideas come through. And I listen to a podcast and I can't find it anywhere, but it talks about how there's a part of your brain that literally like it turns off when you're doing things like relaxing, meditation, going for a walk, that part of your brain that's trying to solve all the problems turns off. And then there's another part of your brain that turns on where it's actually solving the problems for you at an unconscious level, which I loved thinking about that because it's like, we can just tap into that at any moment. I really truly can. And so I love that. So that's what it's done for me. And I just feel like, I also feel like it gives me the ability, you know, I think that just on the the topic of what we're talking about, about stress, I think that we do live in a time where the stress is only going to increase. And it's only because it's from a sensory, you know, the technology, the information. I mean, every day we're on our phones, you know, just so much information is coming in at all times. And I think that it's more and more important now that we all have these practices that can sort of like, I call it like a little chiropractor, like lock us back into, you know, vitality or give us some energy or um, clarity. You'll be able to work better, more efficiently, less stress. And, and yeah, it's just, we live in a very interesting time right now that people need more people like yourself teaching these kinds of practices that can really help us to take the stress out of the system of the physiology and just feel better. That's it. Just feel better. Your life will just change if you just feel better in general. 
So I'm so excited to dive into your project, Be Here Naura. I said it right now, Naura. Correct. Yep, you got it. Be here. Yeah. So Naura. It's so funny. Yesterday I was my accent a little bit says things weird. I was trying to say gift, like a G-I-F. And my friends just kept hearing gift, gift, and I couldn't <laughs> differentiate the difference between it. And they were like, what? I was like, gifts are my love language. But I meant gifts like what you send, like a little funny thing. And they thought I meant gifts. I was like, yeah, I just love getting gifts all the time. I send so many gifts. And they were just like, what are you talking about? And I was like, gift, gift, G-I-F. So tell me about this project that you are doing, which I think is so, so special. Thanks. Yeah, I'll send some gifts after this to say great podcast. Please. (laughs) (laughs) He's just smiling and laughing over here. (laughs) I'm a unique person with the gifts. I mean, I don't think that anybody... Likes gifts as I actually thought about it recently because I don't know anybody that sends gifts as much as I do. I'm 50% deaf, and I think it's a way for me to like express myself through feeling and emotion the way that I need that sort of imagery in real life, too. So that's my diagnosis of why I love gifts so much, anyways. So tell us about Be Here Nava. I say a picture says a thousand words, so a gift might say more. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) so I was living in New York, uh, and while I was loving what we were doing at Convix, I felt like I wasn't making as much impact as I could be. You know, we were trying to take on some big issues. We're ta- trying to take on climate change. It was around the time of Black Lives Matter, um, you know, the um, Stop Asian Hate, all of these things that we were, all these big projects that we're working on were like these big, massive issues. And when I was doing my teacher training, I came across these studies and these studies were done in the 1960s and the 1970s by the Transcendental Meditation Organization. And they were about this idea of, they called it the Maharishi effect. And it's this idea that a small number of people meditating can have a seismic effect throughout a a geographic community. And what they were doing is they were taking these advanced meditators to places with like high crime or like war zones And they were monitoring to see what would happen in the collective consciousness. And what they noticed would happen was things like crime rate, motor vehicle accidents, uh, hospitalizations would all go down when they would take these advanced meditators to these locations. And these people weren't like going out there and fighting crime. They were just meditating in like hotel rooms or like in conference centers. And what they were trying to prove was that there is a collective consciousness and that a small number of people with high consciousness practicing a meditation practice can actually affect the entire group. And so one of the famous studies was the Washington Peace Project. And this was in, I think, maybe the 1980s. They took three and a half thousand advanced meditators to Washington for an entire summer and they got them all to meditate. And what happened in Washington that summer, the crime rate dropped by 16%. Compared to all of the, the cities wow. of a same of similar sizes, their crime rates actually went up over the same period. And then the meditators left, and the crime rate went back. And so, very interesting. I mean, I think this is so fascinating because it's, it talks about it, it. Just sorry to jump in. It's just my brain is exploding right now because it's like it talks about energy fields. Like if you don't believe in it, it's like if you're walking down the street and you feel something behind you, and you're kind of like, "Ooh, I don't know about that." And then you turn around, and you see someone's like running down the street. You know. And it's, we really all have an effect. And if you take three, would you say 3,000 meditators? It was three and a half thousand, yeah. It creates a massive effect, you know, a vibratory effect. So that is just beyond incredible. Wow. Okay, so continue. Yeah. And so I, there's about 55 of these published studies. And I 
realized that none of them had been caught on film. And so I'm from a small hotel, a small town in the south coast of New South Wales, Australia, where I am right now, actually. And my town is not too dissimilar to a lot of US towns in that there's a lot of social issues, there's a lot of uh, drug abuse, there's a lot of violence, and there's a lot of unhappiness. So I wanted to see whether I could maybe recreate this Maharishi effect in my hometown by essentially moving home and trying to teach 1% of the population to meditate and then document the whole process on film. So yeah, I did the teacher training. I left New York and I moved back. I've been doing the project for about a year now. Wow. Uh, I think I've taught about like one third of 1% so far. So it's like, it's moving, it's going along. Um, and I was originally thought the project would take about three years. So it's, it's right on track. And what I'm trying to do is to, to show this effect in action and show that you know, how to build a community, how to go back to a, a, a community that is in need and then implement a intervention like meditation and then show kind of the steps how I did it so that hopefully if we can prove it worked in Nara, we can inspire other teachers to do the same all over the world. That is so incredible. I am thinking about just a time when I was um it's such a simple, it's, it's, it's such a simple thing. I just put quotations. It's such a, seems like a simple thing, but I think that we forget how I like that word seismic these things are because it creates a domino effect. You know, like we think that there's all these studies about like in sports psychology, just changing that 1%. There was, uh, I was reading something about, I think it was the bicycle team in England or something like the Olympic cycling team that study, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And how they like sucked or they were like terrible for so many years and they never won anything. I'm totally going to ruin this. But um, then they basically brought in, do you know the name of the man they brought in? I can't remember, but he, yeah, he was a coach, yeah, a psychologist. A coach that just, that just, that unchanging just 1% changed the shoelaces, like how they tied their shoelaces and then changed you know, once they did all of that, then they changed the fabric of the pants, you know, like a little bit thinner. They changed their diet, like 1%. Everything was just 1% increments. And then that, like the next Olympics, they won like all these gold medals and they were like, they became the best team. And so that's a massive thing in sports psychology where it's about changing. I was just reading another thing about a basketball coach that came in and he made them all like they're all ready to have this like you know tough coach and he made them spend like i don't remember which coach it was but like 30 minutes teaching them how to tie their shoelaces properly and he was like if your shoes which are your feet are the most important thing on that court you know because you have to get all over if your shoelaces are not tied properly it's going to affect you even just by one percent so i love what you're doing because it creates this monumental change and i think that sometimes especially people like yourself people like me who are have that desire to help people in any capacity can feel really overwhelming to want to help as many people as possible, to want to reach as many people as possible and want to, you know, there's so much suffering on the planet, just so many various different degrees. And something that has really helped me is sort of remembering that domino effect, that one helping one person, being kind to one person. And and the best example that I have of this was I was going, I was coming home from Baltimore where I'm from and I was walking, leaving the train station and I was walking up the stairs to the exit, exit the train. It's a huge staircase and everybody's like, you know, slapping their luggage and they're carrying it up. The door just shuts. It doesn't open all the way. So the person walks out and then it shuts closed. And I remember people were just getting annoyed because you could see it was such a long staircase. You could see what was happening. And then one person just held the door open for the next person. 
And that really helped because they had a really heavy luggage. And then that person stopped and held the door for the next person. And then that person held the and I then I went through and I held the door and I kept walking and I stood there. I, I walked a couple of feet away and I stood and I continued to watch. And every single person from that moment held the door open. And that just story always touches me because I think that we forget how simple something can be change can be you just and that's why it's so important but when we meditate and we feel better and that's sort of the whole one of the teachings of kundalini yoga is that your practice so so though that this is from you know one of the meditations does you practice so that you feel so good that people just take one look at you and they feel better like your aura feels good and you feel good and you you don't have to tell them anything you don't have to say drink this green juice or do this or do that they just come around you and they just feel that they can just, you know, breathe a little bit more. So, so how, so you're about a year and you saw it. So you're going to give it, it's, it takes about two more years to go essentially ish. The fun thing about documentary filmmaking is you don't know what's going to happen. And so like just rolling the cameras is the exciting part. And for example, when I first started this, I thought that it was going to be more a film about meditation, but now I'm a year into the project. I realized what the film's really about is about community building. And making a blueprint for you know how other teachers can do the same thing. And I think coming back to you know leaving New York and going back to my hometown, and as you said, there's so many problems in the world. They can sometimes see so, seem so insurmountable. For me, it was about you know think global, act local, and that change starts at home, mm. right? And so it's like instead of being out there trying to fight the big issues, it's like go to where you can have an impact, go to that place. And for me, that that's where I am right now. You know, I feel like it's where I'm having the most, I can have the most impact on the world. And if we can you know, prove it here, then we can inspire other towns as well. A hundred percent. What do you think is um, the biggest change you've seen so far? So I guess on an individual level, and that's what we're doing, we're, we're capturing individual stories. So we're capturing people before they learn to meditate, we're calling them unlikely heroes, people you wouldn't expect to meditate and then they learn and then hopefully their lives get better. And, you know, I've seen people who would have never learned to meditate had they not maybe known me, you know, people I've known since childhood, people I've worked with or people you know, who I was friends with as a teenager because they've seen my change. As you said, we're, we're the, be the best example and people will come to us. And so with Vedic meditation, that's our whole philosophy is that we we just go and radiate happiness for all and then wait for worthy inquiry. We wait for people to come and kind of ask us, hey, why are you so happy? <laughs> and so I've certainly noticed that there's been like people who I would have never expected mm-hmm. to meditate have come, you know, farmers or, you know, everyday people who just work at the local shops who can't have come and they've seen my change. They've seen the the little rat bag teenager I was to now this kind of like man who's happy and like smiling all the time. And they're like, Hey, I I want what you're having. How do I get that? (laughs) And it's very easy. You just sit in the chair 20 minutes twice a day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny how I've seen so many people from my childhood come through and just, you know, show up in the course. And I'm just like, beyond just it makes me so happy every time to just be reconnected in that way and there's so much we could dive into on that you know because I also come from a background with lots of drug abuse and a lot of um you know overdoses and really I think that was what kind of put me on the path from a young from a very young age of just wanting just not understanding why people were so unhappy and why people would 
live their lives that way. You're just very pure as a child. And I couldn't understand why there was so much sadness in people. That caused a lot of sadness in me from a very young age and dealing with chronic depression since I was 12 years old and all sorts of other mental health issues that that took a long time to unwind. And I was very medicated and all that stuff. And I just remember when I found the right practice for me, because there's so many different practices that, you know, might not work. Some people might do community and they're like, no, 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 absolutely not, you know? And then some people might do community and they're like, yes. And some people might do Vedic meditation and they love it. And I think it's always just about, you know, my favorite thing is when people sit down to meditate for a couple of minutes, they're like, no, 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 I hate that. That wasn't for me. And it's like, you have to try it out and see which ones work for you. And it took me a while. It took me a couple of different practices to find which one really worked for me. And once I actually saw those changes, and I was just talking to friends yesterday about this, where I was like, the best gift that all of this has given me is to really just get back to myself and to really know who I am and to really just enjoy myself and to just enjoy being happy, enjoy feeling good. It doesn't mean that every day you're like happy all the time, you know, but it's like you just have a general sense of who you are. And that just changes everything because then you're nicer to people. So right away, it's like the people that you're affecting in your town, it's like if you are helping them, even just one person here, one person there, and then they feel happier, they go out and help tell other people you know, just from being a kind, you know, it's like one person comes and bumps you the wrong way, fucks up your whole day. And you're just like, you hate everyone after that. And you're so mean. And then you go, and then the same thing with kindness too. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question and then we're going to wrap it up. But what is the biggest challenge you face so far with this project and how have you been moving through it? Great question. I think one last thing on that 1% effect is that the whole idea of only teaching 1% takes a lot of pressure off what I'm trying to do, right? If I meet 100 people, if I go and do, do a talk to 100 school teachers, I only want one of them to sign up, you know? And, and so I, as you said, like there's different strokes for different folks. There's diff- Everybody's going to find a different tool which works for them. And so there's a, it takes a lot of the pressure off of like, I'm not trying to teach 100% and, and I'm very aware of, of that. And so it just makes a li- life a little bit easier. But in terms of challenges... I think probably the biggest challenge, and you would resonate this between New York and Baltimore. And I know, you know, you end up back there during the pandemic as well, right? You're back with your family and it's like, you go from the intense socializing of New York, like in New York, we were every day of the week, you could do something social and generally ended up on our rooftop late at night was, was where it would, um, where it would go down. But Moving back to Nara. <laughs> for all of our listeners, Baron's Baron's rooftop was the hot spot of of New York City for a very long time. They had a polar bear, they had twinkle lights. Um, there was a very, very hot spot. I think your apartment was the Brooklyn hotspot for many years. It was very social and you've helped to set up my challenge very well because we were obviously um, enjoying the life and the socializing aspect of it. And so to move back to a small town, you know, it's a small country town. There's no nightlife. There's no um, parties. <laughs> and so you have to kind of create community and definitely creating community in a, in a new way, in a conscious way. But I think I'm a social butterfly and I crave that kind of that socialness, that, that getting together. And so that's been probably the biggest challenge is moving from that changing from one thing to another, but learning to do that in new ways and different ways. And, and, um, you know, also enjoy and get to spend time with my family and my sister and her baby and, and that kind of thing, which New York's a long way away. So 
definitely looking at, at the upsides as well. My grandparents are 95 now, so it's getting to spend time with them towards their end of life. All of those things that you you trade off for being away in a place like New York. So the, the challenge has been <laughs> the social aspect and uh, being single at the moment. But um, I think um, the, there's a lot of benefits as well. So it's good. <laughs> we have lots of beautiful ladies listening to our podcast, just saying. Um, okay. So I just, I resonate with that so much because I think that, you know, you and I both come from creative backgrounds. We come from backgrounds that are very, you know, our, all of our friends are just New York is a very social place. There's so much to do. There's so much to, you know, participate in. Um, that was sort of, you know, when I started doing the yoga back and wellness stuff back in 2009, 2010, I completely renunciated my life in the creative industry. I came to New York to work in fashion in 2007. And I just kind of thought it had to be a certain way. I was like, threw all my clothes away, like stopped washing my hair and just went super. I told you, I'm extreme. I go to the end of the, the pendulum. And I just remember I just felt really unhappy for many years, even though I was doing all the right things and meditating and practicing. And then once I kind of opened myself up to getting back into creativity and back into socializing, and I think I had a lot of judgment around people and different, you know, the ways that they would live their lives and how they would do things. And once I sort of let go of that and sort of stepped back into society, if you will, a lot changed. And it was really funny because I started to meet people who were I like what you said about unsuspecting practitioners in a way where I would just meet these incredible human beings that would be the last people on earth that I would think would be meditators or have. I remember I met this woman, she's a photographer and she's super cool. And she just was, you know, classic Lower East Side woman, married for like 20, I think they're married 20 years now. And they're just amazing couple. And She's just so badass. And I remember she texts me every morning at like 4.44 a.m. And I just, she would send me pictures of like, you know, something. And then at like 6 a.m. she would send me a picture of the sunrise. And I was like, what is she doing up that early? And she used to wake up every morning at 4.44 and meditate and write in her journal. And then she would go for a run every morning and watch the sunrise. And just all these little spiritual things that she was the last, and I was like, and then it was how she lived her life. She was so not preachy. You know, you would just never know. And I was like, there's so many great yogis and practitioners amongst us that are just so unsuspecting. And I really loved that. And that really opened my eyes to sort of how to be more um, open in general. I think it was really closed off because I think that, you know, you kind of get into, maybe it's just me and my extremism, but you know, I can definitely, I loved what you said about unsuspecting practitioners and just, you know, to sort of leave our, both of our communities with that piece of advice. Cause I think that especially in this very digital age where there's so much pressure to like grow your following, build your community, push, 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 and sell these courses that have a hundred thousand people in there. It's so much pressure and it really will destroy you. And it's like, I started with three people in my living room and that's how I started teaching. You know, I remember just, that was how I started. And that was enough. And like, even now I'm getting back to teaching in the studios and, my expectation is like if five people show up, I'll be so happy. Even though I used to teach classes with a lot of people, it's like those, it's just help one person. And I used to teach classes when one person would show up. And I know people, they do that now and they just see this, you know, social media with so many big followings, this and that. And they get really 
upset that you know really let down or discouraged and i just love this mission just helping the one percent it's gonna create and and keeping up i love that you're like this is a three-year goal you know at least because i think that not a lot of people have that patience you know i always say prosperity is patience perseverance and persistence and those are really the three ingredients that we need so any last pieces of wisdom you'd like to share with the community anything you want to a little tidbit. I wish I had something that I could like, you know, like an ad lib or something that I could do. Anything you want to share? Well, before we jump yeah, on? a little, I guess a little personal thing. I just wanted to say to you, like, congratulations on everything that you've been doing. And I remember, you know, during the pandemic, seeing lots of our friendship group doing your courses, um, lots of women doing the Benchon courses, the monthly courses, and like the amount of numbers that you were doing during that time and carrying such big groups. I remember your Instagram getting locked out because you were sending so many messages. Do you remember that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was reaching out to everybody. I was like, someone has to know someone that works at Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and I just wanted to say like that was really inspiring for me. You know, the whole way that you activated those communities, the way that you did it and the way that I've watched your brand grow and um you know now moving into podcasting and, and different things. It's really inspiring. So I just wanted to say that part of my journey is inspired by, you know, the things that you were doing and that your ripple effect is partly felt down here in Nara. So um, yeah, I just wanted to know that you're, you're part of that. Thank you so much. And my second thing would be that one of the things that I'm trying to do down here in Nara is invite people to come here. So not just raise the level of consciousness within Nara, but invite people to come visit and come to the town and enjoy and bring those big consciousness. So at some point, uh, I would love to have you down here in Australia. You can come and <laughs> hang out. The sun's now risen behind and you can see this beautiful bush that we we live in out here. The nature is incredible. We've got great beaches. I'm just laughing yeah, because of- do you know do you know Nita from Lust? From all you Aussies, you Australians know each other. Nita, she owns this company. We were having dinner last night. She's from Australia. And we were just laughing because she's like, yeah, sharks. You don't get attacked by sharks. You just got to do this and do that. And that's how you deal with a shark. We're from Australia. We know how to do it. I was like, I'm sorry, what? I was like, I'm a city girl. What do you want me to do? And they were talking about spiders, the bugs in Australia. She's like, yeah, no big deal. They're just friendly critters. So I'm going to face my fear of wildlife and come to Australia and visit you. It's so funny. I'm such a city girl, but... I am embracing my nature side. I live on the park now, so now I'm making friends with nature. But I would love to come and visit. I've never been to Australia. Actually, funny little tidbit, my family is from Ukraine. And when my uh, family left Ukraine, they went to Italy for a year. And then they went to Israel because when you were Jewish, you would have to go through Israel to immigrate. And they had two choices. They had Baltimore because at that time there's no Google. So you can't like, what's the best place to move? You know, you had to go wherever you were invited. And the two places that we had family in was Baltimore and Australia. So I was almost your neighbor. Sliding doors moment. You could, you could have an Australian accent right now. I have an Australian (laughs) accent. I could be so cool with sharks. I could love spiders. My whole life would be so different. But um, I guess I just ended up. There's still time. Still time time to go left, my friend. Well, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to chat. And it's so exciting to hear what you're up to. I've always been so inspired by what you do with convicts and just all the documentaries you've created and getting to see this take another shape and form. And I can't wait to see what your 1% effect does and how it really changes the world. You're already up to it. You're already doing it. It's so amazing and profound to see 
So I'm so excited. And thank you so much. And we will see you soon somewhere. Maybe Australia. See you in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much. We'll see you later. See you, Desiree. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, please share this episode with someone who you think would love it too. And if you want to explore the topics we discuss even further, join us over at Benshin Course, a monthly four-week course for empowerment and turning dreams into reality. I'll be back next week to discuss more things that I'm so honestly into on Benshin Talk Show. If you like this episode, share it with someone else who you think would love it too. And if you want to explore the topics we discuss even further, head over to Benshin.co to check out our current courses, workshops, and upcoming events. And I'll be back next time to discuss more things that I'm so honestly into on Benshin Talks Shit.